In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts, Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We gather this afternoon continuing our celebration of the Feast of the Ascension of the Lord. And it's worth noting simply as we begin that our numbers are small. Unfortunately, this seems to be one of those great celebrations of the church where most of our people, most of us, just don't get the memo. And um, it's remarkable when we consider what it is we celebrate on this great mystery, and yet how we seem to have so much more enthusiasm for so many other things and other celebrations. And while that's not bad, it is important just to note it that there's something about this mystery, about this feast, whose greatness is largely unappreciated by so many members of the body of Christ. Which then begs the question of what exactly is the greatness of this day, the, this thing that we fail to appreciate. And it's important to recognize where this feast falls. At the risk of belaboring the obvious, it falls during the Easter season. In fact, as we know, 40 days after Easter Sunday. So we begin simply by noting that because the context of the Ascension is Easter, just like the context for Pentecost is Easter. Pentecost Sunday, as well, is not a separate feast day. It is the last day of the Easter season. So the Easter season, then, is a period, an octave, in fact, of eight Sundays. From Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday, there are eight, an octave of Sundays. The great day of new creation, the great day of salvation is celebrated over a season of 50 days. The great Sunday of Easter echoes across eight separate Sundays, culminating in the Feast of Pentecost. When we recognize that, then we see that the mystery we're celebrating is an aspect of the victorious resurrection of the Lord and what that means for all of us. Forty days after Easter, we know. And why? As we noted in the homily today, one of the reasons is that over those 40 days, the Lord with his church, instilled a deep faith in his bodily victory over death. The evidence is that Jesus is not spiritually risen, but fully risen in body and in soul. Humanity is, in that sense, completely redeemed 
And it takes 40 days for this to happen because the greatness of the mystery of the resurrection is something that the human heart and the human mind, as much as it wants to embrace, has difficulty in doing so. Note what we heard in our gospel reading today. They get to the hill where he called them to in Galilee. They worshipped, but they doubted. And as the fathers of the early church used to say, we should be grateful and thankful for the doubt of the disciples. Because it is that doubt which called the Lord to offer such strong evidence of his bodily victory. It is the doubt of Thomas that provokes the Lord to say, come and put your finger in the nail mark. Come and place your hand in my side. Touch me and know me. It is the doubt of the disciples that causes Jesus to say, give me some fish and I will eat it in your presence. Note how this difficulty in coming to terms with the full magnitude of his victory is the means by which then Jesus provides the assurance that overcomes that doubt. So that having touched, having seen, having met, they can proclaim him in such a way that he doesn't have to be standing right next to them for them to be speaking of the truth of his victory. Note then how that sets up the moment where bodily, physically, he departs from them. But only after strengthening them with the certainty of his victory. Overcoming that doubt over the period of 40 days, the Lord now is ready to ascend. And as he ascends from them, as we noted earlier as well, and as the prayers of Mass on this day insist, he takes our humanity with him to glory. Our humanity rises with him to heaven. And why? Because it is our humanity that he took out of the grave. Note how marvelous this is. In the fullness of time, the mighty word of God takes our humanity onto himself in his incarnation. In doing so, he humbles himself. In doing so, he empties himself. In doing so, as scripture says, he takes the form of a slave. He takes the form of a slave. A slave. Let that word just linger in your ear. He who is Lord takes the form of a slave. And in taking our weakness upon himself, he descends all the way even to death, death on a cross. And his body is laid in the earth. His humanity is laid in the earth. The humanity, our humanity, subject to death, that he has taken on himself. 
And so it is then that on Easter Sunday morning, as he leaves the tomb in his body, it is our humanity that leaves the tomb. But note, it is one thing to say our humanity has left the tomb. It begs the question of where does our humanity go? That is what we celebrate today. That is what we celebrate today. That the resurrection and the victory of Jesus and the salvation he holds out for us is not merely a thing for better living in this world, for better living here where we are. Rather, in ascending to heaven, the Lord shows us that man is meant for God. And not meant for God in some theoretical way, but meant to be with God. As St. Augustine so beautifully says, you have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts indeed, they shall wander restless until at last they rest in you. And so what do we see now? The Lord ascends, the Lord rises, and humanity is shown its true home, its true place. That the home we seek is not an earthly dwelling but a heavenly dwelling. What a remarkably great mystery this is. Note, it's one thing to say the Lord has left the tomb. It is another, it's one thing to say humanity has been given victory over death. And it is another thing to say humanity is enthroned above the heavens at the right hand of the majesty of the Almighty Father, above the angels, above all created things. Note how marvelous that is. And here we see one of the great paradoxes that is connected to the incarnation of the Lord and that becomes very evident in this Feast of the Ascension. He who never left heaven as God and yet was among us as man, ascends to heaven, but doesn't really leave us. Look how marvelous that is. The one who never left returns. And yet the one who is still with us will come back. It is marvelous. His humanity is now glorified at, in the place of his divinity. Jesus, who is God, has raised our humanity to that great height. What a remarkable thing, what a glorious mystery that is. And that's something of what we see in this beautiful icon we have enthroned in front of our altar. This icon of the Lord's victorious ascension into heaven. We see the Lord in luminous garments, as scripture says, clothed in light as with a garment. But it is not merely his divinity, strange as it is to say that, clothed in glory. Note that it is also our humanity, clothed with divine glory here. How absolutely wonderful this is. 
The Lord ascends and humanity is made luminous. Humanity is clothed with the glorious robes, the glorious light of heaven. And as he does so, he is seated on his throne. The Lord ascends and his place is to a throne. And here, where the Lord is enthroned so gloriously, the angels gather around and they hold trumpets. And this is an echo of the psalm that we had for our responsorial psalm at Mass today. God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. The Lord ascends to a trumpet blast. The Lord takes his place and heaven shakes in its joy over his victory. And the blare of trumpets is for the word made flesh and throne in heaven. And below, what do we see? We see something very important and very instructive. We see the gathered apostles surrounding Our Lady who stands in the center. And her arms are raised in a gesture of prayer and glorification. She who, she who is the place to which he descended in his incarnation is there with him now as he ascends into glory. Gathered around her to witness and celebrate this moment are the apostles who will leave from here still with her, where they will now pray, united with Our Lady, for the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And flanking Our Lady, but speaking to the disciples, are the two men, the two angels, clothed in white, who say to them, why do you stand here still looking up? The one who has gone forth from you will return just as you saw him rise. And that is a loaded statement. And it's important that we recognize that. Just as you saw him go up. But he goes up gloriously and he goes up into the fullness of glory. And so note the implication, he will return in that glory into which you have seen him ascend. He will return in that authority which he claims now in heaven. He will return with that power that has now been given to him. What a powerful statement. And because he will return gloriously authoritative and powerful, go and do what he has asked of you. But this element here of the looking up as the Lord rises as a vision of his glory is not unimportant. And we see here then, as the psalm says, God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. This is a note that runs through the way the church uses scripture to celebrate this feast day. 
And of particular interest is what is arguably the single most important psalm in the Old Testament, which is Psalm 110. It is the psalm that is quoted more than any other in the New Testament. And the simple weight of how much use that psalm gets should get our attention. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right, your foes I will put beneath your feet. I will send forth from Zion your scepter of power, rule in the midst of your foes. Prince, from the day of your birth on the holy mountains, from the womb before the dawn I begot you. What a powerful language, but note it is the language of Almighty God placing his son at his right hand in glory and giving him kingship and placing all things under his feet. And in the ancient world, one of the classic postures of the conquering king was that the enemy he overcame, the king of the nation he conquered, would be brought in, thrown in front of the throne, where the king would sit and place his feet on the opponent that he had vanquished. I will place all things under your feet. This is an image that runs through the New Testament with regard to the victory of Christ. That this is not merely a symbolic glory. Jesus is no figurehead as a monarch, but one who has real authority, real power, because he has won a real victory. And not a victory that is partial, but a victory that is complete. However, incompletely we see and experience it in our own lives at the moment. And so it is then that we hear the Lord say in Scripture today, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And note how this is a fulfillment of what he says elsewhere. Everything that the Father has is mine. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so note now, this Lord who physically, while among us on earth, wandered only over the length and breadth of Palestine and a little bit beyond its borders, now says, my rule knows no earthly limit. Rather, I have authority over the most distant land on earth. I am not the king of a particular culture. I am the Lord, indeed, of all nations. And in Scripture, only God is spoken of this way. Only Almighty God is truly Lord of all nations. Lord of all peoples. Only God has an authority that extends over the length and breadth of the entire earth. Only God has authority over heaven. So note the statement. The Lord here is asserting divine privilege, divine right, divine rule. He who is the descendant of David 
ascends to that true throne which can never pass away, that true kingship that will have no end. All earthly kingdoms fall. No earthly king reigns forever. But this king does, because his throne is set in heaven, not on earth. His throne is set above the earth, not upon it. What a remarkable statement this is. And so in speaking this way, the Lord is saying, as he sends his disciples out to go and make disciples of all nations, there is not a place on this earth where you can be, where you do not stand under my authority. That command sounds different when we realize it that way. The nations you go to may not know me, but my authority is already there. The lands to which you will move may never have heard of me unless you speak of me, and yet my authority is already there before you even arrive. Because all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now, as we noted in the homily, this is very different from what we see at the beginning of St. Matthew's Gospel when Satan, the ruler of this world, says to the Lord, if you bow before me, I will give you all of these kingdoms, all of these lands, all of these people because they are mine in my hand. But by his resurrection, the Lord breaks the fingers of Satan and snatches the world from his grasp. It is no longer in Satan's hand. Rather, the Lord has received all of the power and all of the authority, not because he bows to the prince of this world, but because he remains always faithful to his Father who has sent him. What a remarkable moment, then, this is. The Lord ascends and takes up his throne, and his church looks upward and sees this is the king whose reign extends over the entire earth. And so when he sends us out into those nations, he is sending us out to gather what is his. He is sending us out to those whom he has already won. And whom he longed, with whom he longs to share this goodness. But he is also showing his church that where I go, you likewise will follow. And here, as the Lord ascends and takes up this throne above the angels, note what else we see here. Jesus himself, in speaking to his church, pronounces a certain fundamental spiritual law that has no exception to it. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift thee up. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, brought low. And what do we see? Who is Jesus? He is the one who humbles himself, in being born in the likeness of a slave. Note how great the humility is. And then scripture says, and he became even yet more humble. 
obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. And because of this, God greatly exalted him. And note, the exceedingly great humility of the word made flesh is answered by the exceedingly great glorification of his ascension. He who takes on the form of a slave rises from the grave and ascends into heaven in the form of a king. How absolutely marvelous. So that man who has lived and groaned under slavery to death might see that a crown does indeed await him in and through Jesus Christ. From a slave to a king, note the fundamental movement here. The great, the exceedingly great humility of the Lord unfolds into the exceedingly great glorification of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift thee up. Note how we don't see something instantaneous. It takes the 33 years of his earthly life. It takes the great work that he has accomplished, and yet note how gloriously it is brought to completion. And the Lord who is ascending says to his church, Go in my name and my authority. Note what he is saying. I share with you the touch of my glory even now. Not in the full sense yet, but in a real sense. Because you will go forth bearing my name. You will go forth into these lands as those who speak for me. Go forth in my service. And note the dignity of this. Note the dignity of this. I who have authority. In that authority send you. I, who am the Lord of nations, to those nations, I send you. And in speaking this way, note what the Lord then is saying. I am with you always, in part because the authority of the word by which I send you does not get taken away. And that endures. I am always with you because you can go no place on this earth where my authority is not found. That's a remarkable statement. There is nowhere you can go that is outside of my authority. I am with you always because you will be formed into my body, in fact, even sharing my life. And my power will work through you and in you. Note how marvelous this is. How marvelous this is. Go. And wherever you go, I am already there before you. Because my authority is there. And so when he says, I am leaving to prepare a place for you, it is, on the one hand, an assertment of preparing that place in heaven where we are called to join him, but it is also very much to prepare that place to which he will call us, to which he will send us, to where he would have us be and work in his name. 
And in saying this again, he is saying, I am pleased. Not simply to share my glory with you, but to share my mission with you. To give you a sharing in this work by which I have saved you. And it is only proper because the Lord uses our humanity to save us. And it is our humanity that leaves the tomb with him. And so what does he do? He strengthens this humanity that we have to go forth in that victory in this world and make it manifest. The Lord doesn't ascend in the eyes of the world. He ascends in the eyes of his church. The church knows his glory. The church sees his glory. The church receives his spirit and then goes forth into the world to make all of that known. The eyes of the apostles are filled with the light of his glory. And those who have seen the light of that glory go forth to proclaim it, that the world might see and come to faith. And again, note how beautiful it is. The Lord removes himself from our physical eyes so that his disciples and all of those to whom they speak might learn to walk by faith. How absolutely wonderful. And so it is then. Having said all of that, that we turn once again to this image with Our Lady here in the center on the bottom, and we see that the community gathers with and around her. Because this moment of the Lord's ascension is connected intrinsically to what will happen 10 days later, which is the completion of the Easter mystery. It's not a separate thing. And note, the Lord who will send his church into the world will not do so until he first strengthens and forms that church. What a marvelous this is. And how often is it that we see earthly kings ascend to their thrones and enrich themselves? How often do we find that those who wield authority in this world give orders without giving those whom they order the ability to actually succeed? How many times do we see that those who are glorified forget those with whom they walked before? So note the Lord. No sooner does he ascend to heavenly glory than a few short days later, he pours forth the abundance of the Holy Spirit on his church. That self-same spirit by which he became flesh, that self-same spirit which rushed upon him on the day of his baptism, that very spirit he pours out on his church. And who is the church that receives it? It is only, it is only the church 
in which the disciples were united in prayer with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and not some other church. How easy it is to overlook this. But note how concrete these mysteries are. The church founded by Jesus Christ is not an abstract reality. It consists in a very specific group of people. It is the apostles, Our Lady, and the other disciples. There is no other church founded by Jesus Christ. And so it is the church that remains united in prayer with Mary, the mother of Jesus, that saw Jesus ascend. It is that church which now gathers to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is that church and not some other church upon which the Holy Spirit descends in fullness and power on Pentecost Sunday. And so now having said that, as we look at the figure of Our Lady beginning today, and continuing for the next 11 days, there are three particular titles of the Virgin Mary that apply to this particular period. This period of the church being united in prayer with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Those three titles are Our Lady, Queen of Apostles, Mary, Our Lady of the Cenacal, and third, Mary, the Mother of the Church. These are the three great Marian titles for this period into which we have now entered. And so we often don't consider the Ascension to be a Marian feast day, but the Marian element of this feast is non-negotiable. It is present, and it unfolds into now everything that comes next. Those who see the Lord rise remain with Our Lady. They return to Jerusalem waiting under the Lord's command, do not leave until you receive power from on high. And in gathering with her now, we're going to see Our Lady's presence and influence in the church under these three great titles. Our Lady, Queen of Apostles. The church will be sent. She is that one who will prepare them for the sending. And so when we look at Our Lady under this title, she through whom Jesus Christ came into the world. She who was the first to bring Jesus to others. She who was that one in whose arms the nations first met Jesus is now that one who will be alongside those who will be sent to those same nations. She is that one who will be with those who are entrusted the task of bearing the presence of Christ and the saving message of the gospel out into the world. And so here it is that Our Lady, and note, not friend of apostles, 
not model of apostles, not person who likes to be with the apostles. Note the title, Queen of Apostles. She's not a figurehead either. It means she has a certain authority with regard to the apostolic character of the church. And so it is that Our Lady becomes that one who forms them in humility, forms them in apostolic boldness. She models it, but she is more than a model to be copied and imitated. She is that one in whose presence their hearts begin to be shaped into a truly apostolic manner. And that makes perfect sense because it is in her that the Holy Spirit molded the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so it is here that apostolic hearts are formed in the presence of Mary. She is Our Lady of the Senegal because they will pray with her and she will pray with her them, not just for them. And so note, imagine this, small wonder the prayer of the church is so powerful over these nine days. Because as those disciples gather in prayer, her prayer rises heavenward too. And in no small measure lifts their prayer higher, purifies their prayer. Note how wonderful this is. The church learns to pray in her presence, but it is also that she is actively praying. And so again, we have to get out of our heads this notion that Our Lady is merely a teacher, that she writes out the rules for prayer on the blackboard and says, just do this. She prays. And her prayer rises from the heart of the church as the church prays. And so note, this image of the church at prayer has the apostolic prayer rising alongside and in the embrace of the prayer of Our Lady. But we also see that her prayer is not separate from the church's. She prays as a member of the church, not as someone in addition to the church. This is the beautiful thing about Our Lady. She's not somebody who stands outside of the body of Christ. She's a member. And so now we turn and we contemplate and we marvel at the second great paradox of the Virgin Mary. And now you're looking at me, well, Father, what's the first? The first great paradox is that she is both virgin and mother. And her motherhood does not destroy her virginity, and her virginity does not prevent her motherhood. She is always virgin, even after motherhood. And yet, as a virgin, she becomes a mother. And one has to marvel at this natural impossibility that gloriously is possible in the Virgin Mary. But as we do that, we look at her now under her third title and we see another paradox. She is the mother of the body of Christ and a member 
of the body of Christ. She is the mother of the church, and yet she is a member of the church. And her being a member of the church in no way negates her motherhood of the church. And her being mother of the church in no way cuts her off from being a member of the church. There's an element of Our Lady that unfolds the full reality of the church, and yet Our Lady herself is a member within the church. It is absolutely marvelous. And so what do we see just as in the Annunciation, where the Holy Spirit comes down upon Our Lady who is at prayer, and the body of Christ is formed within her? So on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Our Lady and the apostles gathered around her while they are at prayer, and the church is formed into the body of Christ. Just as the physical body of Jesus is a well-formed, perfectly ordered human body, so too the Spirit of God working in and through Our Lady forms a united, unified, well-ordered body to go forth into the world and bear the gospel. Note how marvelous that is. This well-ordered body of Christ the church, formed by the Spirit working in and through Our Lady, and yet remarkably in a way that incorporates her as a member. Our Lady is... And so note what the icon also teaches us. Our Lady is not outside the church. She's inside the church. The apostles gather around her, surrounding her in a sense. She occupies the center point the very heart of the church, but she's not outside. She's a member, even as she is the mother of the body. And as we do that and we look at this, we see then how the church itself can be so strongly identified with Jesus Christ. He shares even that movement by which he came first into the world with the church by which he forms these apostles into his body. Small wonder, then, that it's important to, over these coming nine days, make it a point to unite ourselves in prayer with one another and with Our Lady as we prepare for the great feast of Pentecost. But note how it's what we do today that launches us on the way to Pentecost. The Lord, gloriously enthroned in heaven, has given the mission. The Lord, glorious enthroned in heaven, has shown where we are destined to follow one day. The Lord, gloriously enthroned in heaven, has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. And it is in the confidence of that that we gather with Our Lady because we know His promise is certain and His promise is sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.